All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. This is the Teacher Talking Time podcast. But what I read, someone actually mentioned this on the, the other day on LinkedIn, which I thought was brilliant. Working with emergent language, refine, distill, and stretch. Mm. And I thought, oh, I love that. Refine, making something better, saying, okay, functionally it worked, but we can make, we can improve it. Distill, so making language more concise, more succinct. And the other one was stretch. So there may be occasions where you actually want to expand on what you've said to clarify something um, mm -hmm. in an expansive rather than a kind of a reductive way. And th so that's why I think we need to be responsive in some way. And, and that goes back to, you know, any deep end sort of approach. Leo and I were talking about, I don't know how it came up. We were talking about Cristiano Ronaldo the other day. Leo, your opinion, he hasn't iterated his game and therefore he's struggling and we just continue to adapt. And as long as we continue to adapt, you know, we'll be, we'll be that insert footballer here who has been don't be Ronaldo I guess is the pull quote for this episode be Luka Modric exactly exactly Luka Modric is a very good example of a player who's learned to adapt his game based on evolution of football Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast. To those of you who are new, each episode of our podcast is devoted to bringing the most recent, most innovative, and most insightful research applications into teacher education, language teaching, and language education. And if you are also new to our Learn Your English community, I have to tell you more about our new Teacher Accelerator program, which is our online program for teachers all around the world who want to eliminate lesson planning, reach and help more students, teach less, earn more money without, of course, sacrificing work-life balance. Our programs help teachers reflect and develop in the most important skills they need to succeed in the information age. And it's just like your teaching isn't for everyone. Our program isn't for everyone. It's for someone. The program has four pillars of successful design. We have a community. We have live sessions. We have self-paced learning. And more importantly, we have lots, lots of feedback. Does this sound like you? Are you a teacher who wants to implement dogme and task-based learning in your teaching? Do you want to eliminate lesson planning? Do you want to help more students, but also work less? Do you want to transition from selling your time, teaching one-to-one, -to, -one, to actually focusing on outcomes and selling results? Do you want to be a business owner and not an employee? And more importantly, do you want to build and scale your teaching business? If this sounds like you, then you have a great opportunity here. Just head over to our website, learnyourenglish.net slash schedule and book a meeting with us. We would love to have a conversation about your current situation and whether we can help you with any of these things. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast, the Learn Your English podcast, where myself, Leo, 
Mike and Andrew bring you discussions, interviews, and debates on English language training and teaching, and of course, learning. And today's episode is a special one because it marks the beginning of a series that we're going to be running this summer, Dogmy Days of Summer. And we have a very special guest. Um, in this episode, you're going to be listening to an interview that we just did with Dylan Gates, who is basically um, a NEOT teacher who has been working in this specific um, field for about 25 years. And he has extensive experience having worked in Ecuador, UK, and Spain, where he currently resides. And of course, he's done a little bit of everything. He's been a director of studies, an examiner, an EAP tutor. But more recently, Dylan, very much like many teachers out there, has um, moved away from teaching and is also working as a freelancer, as well as teacher training, materials design, and of course, course creation. About 12 years ago, Dylan discovered Dogme, or as he prefers to call it, Teaching Unplugged. And this led to his interest in more deep learning approaches like task-based language teaching and language coaching. When he trains teachers, he really tries to make sure they learn how to move away from the course book and, of course, dealing with emergent language. If you are a language teacher who wants to learn more about Dogme ELT, then this is the perfect episode for you because we talk about Dylan's journey in the ELT sector, um, his inspiration to explore Dogme, defining the concept of teaching unplugged, the benefits and challenges of this approach. Of course, working with emergent language. We also touched on materials design, course creations, and freelancing. I really hope that you enjoy this episode and don't forget to like this episode to comment or to share this with fellow teachers. Thanks for listening. And ladies and gentlemen, here we go, Dylan Gates. All right. Uh, well, welcome, everyone. Welcome to the show. Um, we're very happy that today we have a very special guest, someone that I have been, I've been following his work um, on, uh, on the internet, primarily on LinkedIn, that's where he's very active lately. And we're going to be talking more about uh, these different platforms that teachers can actually um, use when um, promoting their services. So very happy to have here Dylan Gates. Dylan, thanks for, for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, there's. I was reading your bio um, yesterday, and there's so many areas we could explore. And I and I think one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is because I think you encompass pretty much all of the characteristics of the modern language teacher. You um, have worked for institutions. You have created content. You're constantly um, promoting your content on social media platforms. Um, you have created your online courses, and of course, now you are uh, a freelancer in this gig economy that we we find ourselves in in this post-COVID era. But I think I'm I'm very I'm more interested in learning more about your early experiences mm -hmm. teaching English and how and basically how you ended up um, as a freelancer today. Right. Well, I I think you've um, hit the nail on the head. Actually, so many of us now have to dabble and sort of learn and acquire lots of different skills 
I think many of us become jack of all trades, master of none, perhaps, um, which you guys are always talking about niching. So that I think it's it's definitely something that I need to remind myself as well. Um, but I think that's the nature of, as you said, the, the modern language teacher, unless you have a, a fixed contract with a certain language school or language academy, then it can be quite difficult to stay in this business for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. um, which is why I think we have to become a bit entrepreneurial and just try things and experiment quite a lot, constantly upgrade our skills, which can be quite stressful, of course, because um, especially as you get older, you're also competing with people, certainly in the digital sort of world, who can just pick things up really quickly and produce pretty aesthetically quite impressive content. Um, but it may not be pedagogically speaking any better than what you're able to do. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of the aesthetics, yeah, it can be quite impressive. Mm. Um, half and half, because I also work for a company, although I am employed on a freelance basis. Um, I work as a business English coach, although really, am I a business English coach? You know, a little bit of teaching, training, coaching, a blend. And um, so that helps me sort of keep the walls from the door, so to speak. Um, so I know that I can take time off and go back to them. They seem to be quite happy with me um, on top of other things I do, which are the more the freelancing things. At the moment, I'm doing lots of teacher training freelancing. Um, and also, like many of us, I have my own little projects on the side, which which help as well. Yeah, a lot of, a lot, I think that's, that is the modern language teacher, as, as Leo mentioned. Like, Leo and I talk about this, and, and Mike yeah. as well. Like, what, what is the definition of freelance? And I think it probably has changed over time. I mean, I think mm. 10 years ago, definitely more than that, we would have considered someone who just does something on their own on the side as a side hustle. But now, like, every hustle is a side hustle because every, at least in our industry, most jobs are contract based and some, you know, those zero hour contracts that exist out there and things like this. So I think we all have to have three or four or more kind of things. And I don't even know what I think of freelancing is anymore. Cause it used to be that it differentiated one kind of employment from another, but now it's all just kind of blends together. So I just think, I like to think of people as you said, entrepreneurial, self-employed. I mean, for me, I think they're all basically the same thing these days. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and for one of these companies I work for, often they ask me to do something for them. Okay, how do you feel about doing this? It's a short project. So there's almost freelancing within an organization as a freelancer. So there are so many different levels to this. It's like one of these little Russian dolls. I used to think of like the construction industry when people were talking about subcontractors and sub-subcontractors. And I always thought that was so strange, but now I get it. I understand it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, one of the things you said, um, Dylan, which I think it would be very relevant to the audience that we have currently, a lot of teachers listen to this podcast, is you mentioned the skills for the modern teacher. How do you see, and this is a, again, maybe we don't have a proper answer for this, but how do you think English language teaching like from when you started teaching and when we started teaching, we don't have to give that away. But when you started teaching and where we are today, how has language teaching involved in your in your perception? I think one of the things that's really changed is content. Um, when I started teaching, 
content was really the course books we had available mm-hmm. at the language academy I was working for, um, the resource books. And then, I mean, I worked in London for many years and there used to be a free paper, a free magazine. I would pick it up every morning for my high level classes. I would literally cut out an article, take my black marker pen, um, mark a couple of words and, and then photocopy it and make a gap fill. And that would be, you know, my special content for Friday. So, um, and that was always quite laborious. And now it's not, content is everywhere. I mean, now we've got that, that extra jump with chat GPT and AI mm. and, and I've been experimenting with it and you can create a course in two minutes. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, another massive jump. So I think content has really, or access to content. Um, but in other respects, when I think back to when I started teaching and, um, I mean, I'm, as you know, I, I, I'm a fan of dogma and unplugged. And a lot of the teaching I did back in the day was exactly that. It was mm-hmm. stumbling into a class, maybe because a, a teacher was off and you had volunteered to do a cover class and not really knowing what you had. So you'd, you'd photocopy something, walk in, then they'd tell you they did it last week. So you really had to think on your feet. And um, quite early on, I realized that many of the best lessons were that. Right. Where, where that happened so i think that's that's a major change um and then obviously online teaching has just completely changed everything good point i remember mm-hmm. i was don't know why i was thinking about this the other day but at the, the the college that i was teaching at prior to covid or right when covid when everything happened and everything shut down i used to have i'm, I'm sure i was not alone with teachers would have like cutouts and ziploc bags of little things of you know mingling activities mm-hmm. and like whatever you would do and i remember thinking oh my god i'm not how where am i gonna like i don't have those anymore i have to go back and get them and then that that feeling quickly like evaporated like well i i don't need any of those things anymore and it really Mm. what you just said resonates with me because we really don't need any of those things anymore and i think it really makes lots of things easier and the access to content or just access to materials or just access to learning things that can help the learning process always existed but i think now they're just more at the fore and we we realize them uh they're much more much more accessible to us and to the students mm. yeah yeah but of course there is the issue of the rabbit hole isn't there that yeah. you think okay i want to actually do a lesson based on this topic and then three hours later you probably wouldn't end up looking at rabbits on youtube actually that <laughs> often happens to me but yeah you just get so distracted yes that's for sure yeah I remember having a conversation, and I think it was with Ken, Ken last, our last episode. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to the episode with Ken Lackman, um, Dylan, but Ken and I, we, we, go, we go a long way. And one of the things Ken said to me, and he said to us in the podcast, and I think you kind of talked a little bit about that now, but I wanted to ask you, is he said that nobody, like in conferences, in, in, in general, in ELT, Nobody talks about methodology. Nobody talks about language anymore. There are very few people who still talk about language. Everyone else is talking about just, you know, social issues, um, inclusivity, and different different topics. I'm not saying that those topics are less important. But at the end of the day, we are still working with language. And I feel that there are very few people actually still talking about language. What, um, how do you, how do you feel about that? Can you, can you tell us more about how you, you see this? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, you know, you do have these buzzwords, which as you said, diversity, inclusivity, 21st century skills, a couple of Mm. years ago was all the rage. 
Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's an interesting one. I think that there is that temptation. Um, perhaps we can be guilty of imposing certain certain views on our learners and thinking this is what they need to know. Whereas again, going back to dogma and going back to a more negotiated syllabus, often that's not the case. They might be interested in, in talking about completely different topics. So, you know, that is stage one, isn't it? I think of um, mm -hmm. in, in most, in terms of pedagogy, mm -hmm. the needs analysis is essential, isn't it? And however you do it, you need to find out, I think what your learner needs, um, what they want in terms of motivation, because there may be a conflict between them mm -hmm. um, and their interests. And, and as a, someone who's a business English coach, I also work with people in industries I know very little about and not necessarily that interested in, but I've still got to help mm -hmm. them talk about those topics in language. And, and if we talk about frequency, word frequency and, and, um, linguistic frequency you can sort of talk about any topic and you'll you'll do an enormous amount of language practice doing that so i think sometimes we might even kind of overstate the importance of the topic you know thinking what could i do with them and mm -hmm. um one thing i like again about i think scott thornbury talks about how even the most banal sort of everyday topic can actually be something really interesting that's a particular learner if it happened to, the, to them yeah. So yeah. so I I do think, yeah, sometimes perhaps we we spend a little bit more too much time thinking about the topics and perhaps not yeah. enough time thinking about how they can use the language to express whatever is on their mind, whatever they're thinking about at that time. Transferability is important, I think, there, right? Where mm. I, I like to say sometimes, I don't know if you'll agree, but you know, we don't I think a lot of times, at least in my experience, there's a lot of focus in materials on learning vocabulary on learning new words on here's another list of 10 words that you can use for this situation but i always like to say like leo what's what's the number something what's the research say that how many words does like a b2 student need it's like it's not that many it's well, a couple thousand in general right? yeah if you know the most the top 2000 or the 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 most frequent words yeah like you can function about 85 percent yeah mm -hmm. yeah so i always like yeah. to say like we don't, not that learning new words is bad because obviously more words, obviously better. Like there's no, there's no mm. negative to like learning new words, but the priority for me is always helping them to use the words they already know in a better way, in a more specific way, in a yeah. transferable context. So in a business context, mm. you can go to a presentation, you go to a meeting, you go to a sales meeting, you can go to a client after work function. And these sets of skills linguistically can help you in all of those situations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And certainly in a business context, so many of our learners now, they'll be speaking with other non-native speakers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this brings us into English a lingua franca and business English a lingua franca, which is a really interesting area as well. Yeah, they have a new acronym for that, right? <laughs> BELF, is that, what, is that what it is? BELF? Yeah, yeah. Not the most attractive sounding yeah. acronym, is it? What oh. is that? BELF, MILF, it's, they're, so, they're so similar. What does BELF stand yeah. for? Business, uh, business English, English as, a, as, a, as a lingua franca. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Well, I was actually thinking, we're talking about this whole dogma thing, and, and we're just talking about like materials and everything. And there, there's a lot of similarities to a, a memo that I was reading recently. 
and it was by by this um, electrical engineer who also worked with uh, Steve Jobs and eventually became the first chairman of um, Apple Computer. And he talks about the three principles of the company, and two of them are actually very much related to what we were just talking about. And the first one is this idea of empathy. So there, we need a lot of different social skills in order to be able to use to work with dogmen. We'll talk more about that. But I like what you said because what you have to do and starting with the needs analysis that we have to really or truly understand the needs of the students better than anyone else. And sometimes mm -hmm. a course book, sometimes the, we worry so much about the materials. We worry so much about these externals and not so much about the one thing that we really need to know um, well enough, which is, which is their needs. And then the second one, which I think creates affordances for us to actually use um, less material and focus on the language is, is what he says, it's focus. In order for us to do a good job of those things, we have to uh, eliminate all of the unimportant, and I like how he describes this, the unimportant opportunities that are always going to be really good learning opportunities in a lesson. But I think the, the the task of a good teacher is to eliminate all the unimportant opportunities and focus on the ones that are actually more um, more important. And since we're talking about about dogma, and we kind of like got here. What inspired you, Dylan, to explore dogma a little bit more? Not every teacher decides to do that. Mm. Um, and and tell me more about how it or tell us how it influenced your teaching and the way you approach material design and business English coaching as well. Right. Um, I think I first came across Dogme probably about 2007, 2008. Actually, maybe slightly later. Um, I was working as a, an assistant director of studies and a director of studies at a language school in London. And I remember the owner of the school she said, Dylan, look, all of the, the, the teachers, they're using far too many photocopies. Um, she wanted to basically cut costs, which is a common uh, conversation any DOS will have with a, with a language school owner. And she said, what, what can you do? And I said, well, what about materials light activities? And we had, we had quite an interesting approach. Um, basically, in the, at this time, I don't know anymore, but at that time in UK language schools, um, most of our learners were on student visas, which required them to attend right. 15 hours a week. So that's three hours a day, Monday to Friday. And we divided it into sort of the first one hour, um, 30 minutes or 45 minutes. We followed a course book, then there'd be a break. And then the final one, the final hour, hour and a quarter, whatever it was, was kind of a topic based session. And we were given free reign to do whatever we wanted to there. And um, they were based around familiar topics in course books, the family, work in uh, education, games, entertainment, and so on. And so I designed these minimal resource lessons, um, which didn't require really any photocopying, no cutting out, very few images. Uh, and, that, and then I think a couple of years later, after doing a, I think I did my Delta. No, I probably did my Delta before then. But... Um, I remember coming across Scott Thornbury's work and thinking, ah, okay, this is kind of what I was doing. And then, um, and then I realized that, I mean, I was a fairly experienced teacher at that point. So dealing with emergent language, I don't think I described it as such, but I was fairly comfortable doing that at that point. Um, and conversation driven and materials light, all those, those three pillars of the dogma approach. I think I was quite comfortable doing them. And I think I made a conscious effort 
And then I became a director of study. So I remember having a few workshops with some of my teachers and, and they seemed to like the approach as well. And, uh, and I think that's when originally I got quite interested in that. And then more recently, working exclusively with adult professionals, mainly business people, um, often they would tell me that they would say, look, I'm, I'm very confident of work. Um, in many respects, I can do my job quite effectively in English. I struggle with things like socializing, making small talk, um, you know, the static communication, building yeah. relationships and everything like that. And so that made me realize that a lot of business professionals do need both. And, uh, and that's why I think dogma, teaching unplugged, doesn't work in every context, of course. And, you know, the idea of dogma moments, I think, is very, very important um, because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people will want to follow a syllabus that have specific aims, but also these aims also... Or their needs emerge, don't they? Mm -hmm. I mean, we talk about mm -hmm. emergent language, but emergent needs, I think, is just as important. Yeah. And emergent topics as well, like things that you don't even know. I think that if we create space, room for those things to naturally emerge, they will. And eventually you will have a curriculum, as you said, that is being constantly negotiated. And I've been I've been asking myself this question, and I remember talking to Ken at a different um, opportunity. And maybe it's related to what you said earlier in our conversation, because dogma had its moments, like had its its apex back in mm -hmm. the day, and then it kind of like disappeared a little bit. And then I would say during the pandemic, that's when dogma kind of experienced some sort of resurgence, and. I'm wondering if that is because of the idea or this, this, this fact that we actually have a lot of content and teachers just find it easy to just like, you know what, there's way too much content out there. I'm just going to walk into a classroom and see what happens. Maybe mm. the lesson is there waiting for me. Do you see any connection there or what do you? Yeah, you quite possibly. I mean, one thing about the pandemic, so many people started studying online. You know, they, they hadn't considered having Zoom classes or, or working online. And as soon as they did, I think a lot of learners actually realized, actually, they can do a lot of the gap fills, a lot of the, word, uh, the sentence transformation. They can do a lot of that sort of language work, the more focused language work in their own time. Um, and so why would they actually work with a, a teacher, trainer or coach? Well, it's that conversation. It's that ability to have a conversation, to interact. And I think that that was the moment where there was a bit of a tipping point again. And people thought, actually, mm -hmm. um, dogma certainly works as a kind of a supplement as well. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. It can be alongside um, a different sort of curriculum. And we're talking about your business coaching experience mm -hmm. and i know that there are a lot of teachers out there who are kind of trying to pursue this this path of becoming a coach working with um a very specific um, audience i should say where do you see dogme within that specific context of working or coaching working as a freelance teacher what do you find to be the, the perhaps some of the most 
important benefits of using dogma in this context that you're you find yourself inserted in and what are some of the challenges that you find as well because i'm sure that there are there are of course you know benefits and challenges to implementing this within this very specific context this very specific niche that you have yeah yeah absolutely and uh, i think that is that's certainly a challenge if you're working in any sort of esp context then you know, that's the big argument in, in English for specific purposes, isn't it? It's can you be kind of a generalist and still be effective in that context? And I'm not I'm not really sure. I think it's it's definitely possible. Um, but again, you have to really work, you have to discuss that with uh with the learner. It might be a case of you needing to to get some basic information about a particular niche. Uh, it might be you sort of transferring the the agency and saying to the learner, okay, instead of uh, me asking you about this, what about you do some research or you know about your specific sector, okay? Imagine I'm someone who doesn't know about that sector. You tell me about it. So, you know, switching roles a little bit. And, and through that, I think... Um, the language will emerge and so we can work on that but again i i think you know we are language whatever we want to call ourselves teachers coaches or trainers going back to your earlier question i think that's fundamentally what a lot of us do um and unless we're really confident in a particular niche then that's always going to be a challenge uh, i mean for me the elephant in the room is that students don't know what dogma is they don't know what task-based yeah. learning is they don't know what ppp is they just want to get better and they don't care yeah. like they don't care what pedagogy we use we do because it's we know it's important and we know the sure, process sure. but if you sit down with a student and say we're going to do a dogma lesson today they'll look at you like you have five heads they don't know what, what you're talking about <laughs> so it's like for me as long as we choose you know we talked with ken about responsible pedagogy and choosing one you know whatever we choose mm. whether it's dogma or something else but one that we're confident can actually help the student improve and get better that's the one in my opinion that that we should go with. And I think there's a misconception about dogma in terms of helping a niche or a course and things like this and where it, with a place that it comes in, at least for me. I mean, working within a niche, it sounds like, Dylan, you work, you really help professionals who are fairly competent in their language mm -hmm. skills at work and need kind of the socializing for business purposes. That's quite specific. But where, you know, for me, where the dogma gets placed in that is you sign up people who have a similar starting point and they have a similar ending point. The goal is the same. There's what we say a, a harmonious or a homogenous group of people who have a similar goal. But that doesn't mean their path is the same or their path is linear. They have different issues and different challenges along the way. Some people will be really good at initiating a conversation and the next person will be really bad at that. And then the next thing they're going to swap and strengths and weaknesses. And I think that's for me where dogma comes in in that course or that learning process is the destination is similar. They want to be able to do X, but their individual challenges along the way will, will differ. And that's where a responsive or a dogmatic or an emergent approach, whatever word you want to use, can apply. Is, is that kind of how you navigate it too? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think what's the term principled eclecticism? You know, you do what you feel is appropriate at a specific time. Um, which might be dogme, might be focused much more on a task. Um, you know, and and what I love about the dogme model is that in with the emergent language, you're left almost 
to your own, well, you can choose how you want to deal with that emergent language. And it might be a case of doing a, a PPP style lesson. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you realize that actually they're not able to use the first conditional. They need to, it's, it's a common structure in negotiations. If you do A, I will do B. And so you think, okay, well, this might work if I do a quick PPP type um, segment on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's the expression to throw the baby out with the dishwater? I think that's it. Very strange yeah. one. But it just came to <laughs> mind because um, I had a student actually say it the other day, which was very odd. And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with using these techniques if you feel they will work in that particular. And, and the research as well, it's never quite definitive, is it? There is, no. you know, once we explore research, I'm sure there are, there are various studies revealing that PPP works well with a particular language structure and maybe not with others and so forth. Sure. So. Mm -hmm. And this is where that just kind of criticality comes in, where all of us mm -hmm. as individuals, as freelancers or whatever word we want to use, you know, who do I help? What is my niche? How do I help them do it? Am I successful? Are they actually doing it? Are they getting the results? Mm -hmm. And I think we, Leo and Mike and I always talk about like it's a results based thing. It's it's a it's a goals based mm -hmm. thing. It's the path is important, but if they sign up and they want to, you know, improve their small talk so that they can improve their networking skills and get promoted or be interviewed for different things, and they're actually doing it, hey, for me that's that's a win. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, the key word, as you said, I think is flexibility. Absolutely. I'm, tr I'm trying to find, um, remember we interviewed, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you know who Anthony Goggin is, Dylan. Yeah, I do actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had him on the podcast and he did say something really interesting related to what we're just talking about. And I was just trying to pull the, the quote here. Yes, I found it. <laughs> he said, for me, teaching requires that you take the starting point of what is being taught as wherever the person who you are teaching is at. And then you go to that place. And then you take them from there to wherever they want to get to. And he said, this is the clear statement of my position of on teaching. Um. So I think it's very much what we're trying to say here in a, in a different mm -hmm. way. I think a lot of, a lot of us um, kind of see language in that way. And I, th and I also liked that you, you've mentioned that there is room for PPP within a dogma lesson. I've always believed that PPP has it. I don't like PPP. I wouldn't mm -hmm. teach a lesson on PPP, but as you said, if you are working with a very specific group of students or a very specific client or student, what have you, there is room for you to actually use a PPP within that lesson. And the same applies to task-based language teaching. A lot of teachers think that if I'm using TBL, I cannot use Dogme, I cannot use PPP. I'm like, no, actually, there is room in the TBL framework for Absolutely. you to actually insert a PPP lesson, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there is that. There's always that final slot where you deal with the language. Mm -hmm. Okay, any language issue that came up, and um, and how you want to deal with that. Well, I mean, <laughs> there are many ways to deal with with any of those language issues. And, and that's and what I was going to ask you. 
I wanted to ask you more about like what, how do you approach dealing with emergent language in your teaching? Do you have any specific, because that seems to be the number one question mm -hmm. I think we get from a lot of teachers is like, Leo, are there any strategies? I'm like, well, if you have, if you know the language, and I think we talk a lot about this idea of teachers possessing a certain level of language awareness, I think it's important. But again, but then again, I also argue that if you if you never work with language, then you're never going to improve your language awareness. So in a way, for you to become better at it, you have to just kind of do it. You don't need to just wait until your language awareness is at a certain level in order to be able to get there. So I wanted to hear more about how you approach emergent language, any strategies that you use to help learners, you know, become more um, aware of the language or if you do anything that makes language more salient to them. So basically just how you approach emergent language within mm -hmm. your context. I mean, again, I don't think it has to be particularly complicated, um, mm -hmm. but often, certainly in, in, in any sort of conversation-based activity, um, recording, noting down what has been said is, is vital if there's something you want to work on. So giving the learner time to actually look at what they've said, and often that's all that's required, isn't it? Often they're able to self-correct or they're able to think, identify an issue with that. But finding those moments in, in a lesson where you can just pause um, kind of publish what's being said and then just do a bit of language analysis. And, you know, teachers are often so um, kind of, they're, they're following their lesson plan. You see this a lot on in initial teacher training courses and, you know, they want to actually reach a certain part. And yet this is a moment and it may only take 30 seconds in many cases where you can just stop, put the language on the, on the board or however you want to publish it Get the learner, see if they can self-correct. If you're working with groups, obviously, then there's peer correction. But, you know, that's, that's for me, that works probably 75% of the time. A lot of learners, they're slips, really, aren't they? They're not, you wouldn't go as far as to call them mistakes necessarily. They're just slips. And if they're given the time to actually look at what they've just said or what they've just written, then they're often able to either self-correct or they're alert to some problem with that sentence. Um, but that's mainly to do with correction. But what I read, someone actually mentioned this on the, the other day on LinkedIn, which I thought was brilliant. Um, working with emergent language, um, refine, distill, and stretch. Mm. And I thought, oh, I love that. That's um, And actually having your own sort of taxonomy, of, of taxonomy of how you can actually categorize emergent language, I think is important. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, and welcome to another interview with a Teacher Accelerator member and Jessica Diaz. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you for inviting me. When you have only one one-on-one lessons, one-to-one, -one, there's a limit. You're gonna have a limit of students. And even if you have like 20 students, that's too much. You're gonna be overworked and overwhelmed. That's not something that I wanted. I'm not leaving school to be overworked with something that's going to leave me trapped again. That's, that's the thing of having your online course, because you can be at the beach selling your course. This being overworked took, took a toll on my mental health. So I was like, I want to have time to go to the gym, to spend time with my family, with my friends. 
And I wasn't able to do that. I wanted to help more students and I also wanted to have more time for myself and also to develop myself as a professional because I wanted to read more. I wanted to take other courses. There's so much things uh, in the tap course. Hey everyone, this is Andrew from Learn Your English. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Teacher Talking Time. You know, this podcast is just one resource that we have here at LYE to help you in your teacherpreneur journey. But I also wanted to speak about another one that we have, which is our Teacherpreneur Support Network, or TSN. TSN is a free community for emerging teacherpreneurs to plant the seeds of their businesses and watch it grow at their own pace. No rushing, no stress but with some light accountability to help you achieve what you're actually capable of. Specifically within TSN, you'll find free support from myself, Mike, and Leo to ask specific questions pertinent to your specific situation. You'll also find a free course on setting up the pillars to grow your business sustainably and avoid key mistakes that we made in our journey over the years. You'll also get access to all of our live workshops and live events focused on course and business design. More importantly, TSN is a guide to help you set up the foundations of your sustainable online business if you're really serious about taking that step. And it's all free to help you get moving. So to see if TSN is a good fit for you, you can join the conversation with other teacherpreneurs and us by clicking the link in the show notes below or just join from our website, learnyourenglish.com to get started right away. That's learnyourenglish.com. Once enrolled over there on TSN, you'll be able to work with us directly for free and be given the guidance to set up your business the sustainable way. No magic pills, no quick fixes, no million dollar promises. Just practical foundations that help you build the balanced business you envision for yourself. Better yet, you'll be able to collaborate with others on the same path as you. You know, we like to say that it's almost impossible to move forward unless we surround ourselves with others who are on the same trajectory as us. So if you're serious about challenging yourself and you really want to take that next step, head over to TSN and get started. Once again, you can click the link in the show notes or just join from our website, learnyourenglish.com. We hope to see you over there. And now let's get back to the show. Hi, everybody. My name is Thiago Freire and I'm from Sao Paulo, Brazil. And you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Fala, galera. Meu nome é Thiago Freire, eu sou de São Paulo, Brasil, e você está escutando o Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Espero que vocês gostem. Can we break that down? I think it would be really nice for, for people listening to this. So, refine? Refine, which, I mean, for me, mm. it's all about yeah, making you... it, okay, making something better, saying, okay, yeah. functionally it worked, but we can make we can improve it in some some way let's let's remove some impurities here <laughs> exactly exactly and then um distill okay um so making language more concise more succinct um yeah. certainly in in the corporate sector we all have to do that you know how many emails are 25% too long mm-hmm. so 100% <laughs> exactly. Oh, I'm, I'm lost with the maths there. 100% and 25% together. So refine, distill, and? And the other one was stretch. Stretch. 
So there may be occasions where you actually want to expand on what you've said to clarify something um, mm -hmm. in an expansive rather than a kind of a reductive way. And, and that really got me thinking, actually. And, and, and um, I think there is room for, uh, I know Richard Chin and Danny Norrington Davis, their, their new book on emergent language, which mm -hmm. I haven't bought yet, but I hope to be getting at some point. You know, they talk about expanding and recasting and everything like that. But but I, I love the rule of three. So I thought that was a that was a really good way of looking at yeah. refine, it. Refine, distill, yeah. and stretch. stretch. Shout out to whoever posted that. That's fantastic. That's that's really good. RDS. It's an RDS. I was just thinking. RDS. It's mm. funny because even when the when you think about the word refining, refining is and I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm working with a lot of learning design lately and taking courses and study a little bit more of that. It's interesting how a different field uses a lot of the same. Um, they use different acronyms for things that we do in language teaching that we have different acronyms for. And they have this model called the Addy. And I think somebody mm. posted about that recently. And I was I'm actually working on a project using Addy, which is you analyze and then you develop, I think, the second one. Actually, I could be wrong. Let me see what the... Is it develop a, and design, isn't it? Yes. You No, you, you analyze. So analysis, design, development. That's right. Implementation and evaluation. But it's non-linear. Like you can analyze and then evaluate. You can design and then evaluate. You can you know, develop implement evaluate or you can develop evaluate so it's 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 an instructional design model but when you said the thing about refine distill and stretch it's all reactive based it's a, it's a it's a reactive framework right so i think that speaks a lot to how a lot of language at least the way i see it a lot of good language teaching is somewhat reactive as opposed to proactive. So we're not, we're not preemptively. I don't see, I mean, I still see some of this, but I don't, I mean, we see this in, in, in specific programs that I have taught over the last couple of months, even where we have to preemptively teach certain, certain topics, certain words. Whereas when we work with a model like that, you, it's just more reactive. Uh, it's a more reactive framework that allows it eliminates i think it eliminates the repetitiveness of certain language points that we're constantly teaching over and over and over and over again right hmm, i like that yeah absolutely and certainly in terms of language points um that's one of the issues isn't it i mean you you see so many teachers walk into a classroom they've devised the lesson on x let's say the second conditional um do we know if they can use it? Do we know if they've already acquired that? Do we know if half the, the, the group of learners are actually fairly confident? Could they maybe help the other half? Um, and th so that's why I think we need to be responsive in some way. And, and that goes back to, you know, any deep end sort of approach. Mm -hmm. I mean, we used to talk about test, what is it? Uh, test, teach, test. test yeah. Which, which in a sense is, it's often what we do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you need to have that, that, beginning where you think okay let's let's survey where they're at at the moment what are they capable of doing at the moment mm -hmm. and then moving from that and and i think it's 
So many teachers don't do that. Yeah. Especially for specific outcome-based stuff, like if, you know, exam preparation or things like this, where there is a standard, it's less about mm. organic language learning and it's more about, hey, you need to do this to get mm. this kind of score. You know, a, a test is test I, I'm a big fan of because mm. it, it's not just let's do a PVP on how to write IELTS 2, for example. It's, hey, do it. Let's mm -hmm. analyze it. Mm -hmm. Let's see how you've done it. Let's see where your weaknesses and strengths are. Let's do a little bit of analysis and then let's do it again. You are using yeah. the Addy model when you do that, basically. If you do what, what Dylan mm. said, you start with the needs analysis. The needs analysis is nothing more than you understanding the profiles of the people that you're working with, what their needs are, what kind of learning interventions or what kind of learning um, tasks you need to um, use. And then you design those things, right? And then, and then you develop, and then of course you're constantly evaluating at different stages. And I think that's where that's where dogme is. Dogme is you evaluating and implementing, and help. So I think now this is good. I'm glad we're having this conversation. So I think the dogme, the refine, distill, and stretch, is basically the develop, implement, and evaluate in the Addy model, basically. Could be, couldn't it? Let me. Yeah. 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 The more, I, the more I read about this stuff, the more I realize that in language teaching, we just have different names for different things. We're in different industries. We're also in the, in the learning industry. Acronym syndrome, for sure. Yeah. In, in our industry. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. You mentioned the word repetition, Leo, earlier. I think repetition is an interesting word in, in this context, because usually we think of it, you mentioned it kind of as a, a negative and just repeating the same grammar points, the same vocab, but repetition inherently is important for mm -hmm. language learning. I mean, we usually call it redundancy or something, but basically yeah. just coming back to the same, to the same thing. Emergent language, generally speaking, I think we're, we're talking about when it's produced, when students are speaking, mm -hmm. certainly when they write, I think that, that would count mm -hmm. as well. But the big click for me has always been when students can recognize what we do in class, whether that's digital, face-to-face, -face, async, whatever, in the learning process. And they can actually notice it mm -hmm. in their life, in the things that they're doing. And they, then they, the, the motivation like just kicks in, right? Because they're actually recognizing how it's useful. Other people yeah. use this too. Dylan, I don't know if you've read uh, The Laws of Human Nature, that book. Have you read that book? Robert Greene, is it? Robert yeah. Greene. Yeah. Okay, okay. I think I've got I, my Kindle somewhere. It's like a thousand yeah. pages. It's very long. I've, I've read a lot of it. But Leo and I, I think Mike too, we're all reading it. Do you remember Leo? Like years ago. Yeah. You guys never the finished time. the book, by the way. Did not finish. No. The long it's, book. It's a long book. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember because we were testing. Uh, this is the only reason I remember this. We were testing a new way of teaching academic writing. You remember this, Leo? And the structure yeah. that, that we use. And we were happened to be reading that book coincidentally just at the same time. And I remember texting each other and getting like really excited in a really geeky way because it's very teacher like not you know oh my god he writes exactly the same structure as we were applying in terms of and then we expanded the approach maybe this is the that was the refine now we're stretching it right yeah like other nonfiction authors and then we read atomic habits and we saw the same thing and then we read another nonfiction book and we saw the same pattern and then we help students to recognize those patterns in reading as well. And I know that's not like the traditional definition of emergent language, but as they read, I would say the language also emerges. It's there in front of them. Mm -hmm. And the things that we help them refine, distill, and stretch in, in spoken English in class 
when they start to notice those tools and strategies and patterns in things that they're reading or watching in their own life, it's just so much more powerful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and that's why I think dogma is is so powerful in many ways because it kind of legitimizes that, doesn't it? It says actually the content doesn't have to be external. It can be, mm-hmm. you know, you work with both, you work with the, the learner's internal syllabus, you know, as their, their interlanguage is changing. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, their internal lives, what they're going through, what they're thinking about, what they need, everything like that, which could be, I mean, it's a very flexible approach, isn't it? Because you can you can use it almost with anyone. You could probably, I mean, I, I don't teach kids, but I imagine you could probably teach a five-year-old or a six-year-old um, mm-hmm. using a sort of a an unplugged type approach. For sure, for sure. I mean, that's, kids i don't know really but i always imagine mm. it has to be like that right imagine sitting a five-year-old down for a ppp lesson like that's not gonna work <laughs> <laughs> i think there's no zero percent chance of that working we get lots of i think more curiosity about like oh but dogma with beginners we can't do it and we always mm. say like well that's the only way what are you going to do are you going to lecture them you're going to sit like are you going to just talk like they don't understand right they're starting from scratch so it really just is what do they know because the word beginner is not really a, a, a real definition. Like there's lots of different versions of, of mm. that person. So like you said, what's the starting point? What's the needs analysis? And then, you, or as, as um, Anthony would say, that's the starting point. Let's meet them there and then go forward from there. So I agree. Like, obviously, we're biased. You don't have to convince us about using <laughs> dogma. We, we love it. But I think there are lots of approaches. But there are, I think there's a risk of just becoming too, like, you know, it may not apply to 100% of, of context. And I think there is a danger of just being too ingrained in it and not being, in a way of being, like you said, flexibility is important, but in this case, being inflexible and I'm only going to use dogma and I'm only, and not going to move off of it. And I think that probably is too extreme. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it does depend of course, on what the learner wants and their needs and everything like that, but it, there may be some cases where the dogma approach is exactly what they want, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found this book. That's what I was looking for. I'll talk about it in a second, but I'll wait for you because it's related to what you were saying. Yeah, no, I was just about to say that um, there is the risk as well of of monotony, I think, using Mm. any approach too much. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's the good thing about working with, and I think it was this guy here who talked about this, Tharp and Gallimore. I don't know how many of you have read this book, Rousing Minds to Life. It's a fantastic book. I bought it out of a secondhand bookstore and still in pretty good condition. But they talk about the idea of using what they call instructional conversation and how conversation Mm -hmm. is basically um, what creates learning, basically. Um, And he basically says, like, you know, even though conversations are predictable, you know, because one turn has to follow another. At the same time, it's it's unpredictable because it's locally assembled by the people having that conversation. So you can, and this is why it's this is why it's so hard to work with, and also because it takes place in real time, right? So it's it's unpredictable. So there's this constant tension between the predictability and the unpredictability of conversation, which makes real conversation the perfect medium for for instruction. And there's a quote by Leo Van Leer. And I think the only person mm-hmm. I've heard 
talking about Leo Van Leer was Richard Chin, and we kind of geeked out a little bit on that. But Van Leer talks about like learning taking place when the new is embedded in the familiar so that the risks and the, I think, security are in balance. And he basically mm -hmm. goes on to talk more about like conversational interaction is doing that. It's linking the known to the new. It creates its own expectancies, its own context. And of course, it's constantly offering choices to, to the participants, which brings me to the point, Dylan, that I wanted to get to, because you have been doing a lot of work with, with, uh, with Dogma, with, and you've been freelancing as well. And I wanted to get, I want us to get to this part because I think a lot of teachers are interested in that. There's this natural shift where a lot of them just want to kind of like build their own thing. So I want you to tell us more about your, your experience of freelancing, how, like if you use any specific strategies to market your services as a freelancer, and more importantly, I think, how do you balance the need to promote yourself? with actually the fact that you have to focus on actually doing your work as well. <laughs> mm, okay, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think anyone who's been freelancing for a while, it's it's certainly not a linear process. Um, often it's one step forward, two steps back. Um, your motivation, I mean, you've been there obviously, so I mean, motivation, is it comes and goes. We often think as motivation, I think, in terms of language teaching is being quite fixed and mm -hmm. yet it's not <clears throat> you know and we see that with our learners i don't know why we think that sometimes but um but motivation comes and goes um i i think like a lot of people in terms of needing to to publicize my own work um i feel quite comfortable now on linkedin so this idea of choosing one platform you feel comfortable with um I've found out that I tend to procrastinate a lot. Um, it's quite difficult for me to make decisions. So um, probably in terms of my temperament, I might not be the ideal freelancer or entrepreneur. I think <laughs> you know, it's something I've really had to work on. Um, but I, I think that it's a bit like what you said about in a classroom, how you, know, you, you start where you are. So... Um, baby steps, um, celebrate those small victories. Mm -hmm. But I think it's what you, you talk about a lot in your program and all the work you do, consistency. Um, and we know that motivation doesn't necessarily lead to consistency. And mm -hmm. perhaps habit forming is it's the crucial factor. I'd say it's the opposite. Consistency leads to motivation. Oh, that's it. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. if you wait... Who someone said this and I forget the name, but if we wait to be motivated, we'll be waiting forever. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You can't rely yeah. on motivation as as some sort of fuel is, to get you going. This is mm. certainly not a therapy session, Dylan, but can we unpack your procrastination <laughs> for a second? Like I know there's lots of teachers listening and, and this is our our sphere and your sphere is, is teachers, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I don't think it's a teacher specific issue. It's mm -hmm. a it's a human condition, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is that everyone, you know, maybe it's people who are listening who, who say, hey, no, I procrastinate too. I, I'm doing it. I know I'm doing it. I just can't get out of it. What did you do to kind of end that cycle for yourself? <laughs> I'm not sure how I've ended that cycle, actually. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, 
But what's one step you've implemented to help in that process? Okay, I think one step is actually people getting themselves out there, and that helps. I think. Um, I mean, it's something I've done recently on LinkedIn, certainly, and just publish publishing a lot more on LinkedIn. Continued posting. So it's like with anything, isn't it? What first feels really uncomfortable over time. And again, this brings us back to language learning, which is a classic example. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to go through that period of discomfort and just, you know, you can rationalize that. You can say, this is normal. It's, a, you know, it's perfectly normal that I feel uncomfortable, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, being optimistic and thinking at some point I'm going to feel less uncomfortable. And then you might even reach the next stage, which is feeling um, okay with what you're doing. Right. Nice. Huh. We like to kind of joke, and it's not really, I mean, under every joke is kind of some foundation of truth, right? Where if you're mm-hmm. just starting and you don't have a platform and you don't have any posts, you know, that's the best time to do it. Because mm-hmm. the best time to post something is when no one's watching. And if you have no connections and no audience, no one's going to read it, quite literally. So it's yeah. it's actually the perfect sandbox and the perfect playground to like, test some stuff and just get over that hump you know when no one's watching it is nerve-wracking when there's lots of people watching and then you start so before you have all those people watching embrace the the empty embrace the no (laughs) the no audience and and get and start to get some consistency there sure sure but you know that's a psychological condition that most of us suffer from we think when we're exposed that everyone is is identifying and focused on any imperfection yeah Um, and people don't notice because especially now everyone's distracted most of the time so yeah um, that's true the reality is that everyone is it's kind of ironic everyone's thinking the same thing like oh i mm. don't want to post because these like this all these people are going to see it but all those people are also thinking i don't want to post because all these like not that the only person who sees all of your posts is you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right yeah. like even people who follow i mean on our page like our instagram page is quite big and we put leo does an awesome job posting basically every day and we have lots of engagement but really like it's a like person who sees all the posts is so low it's so two to three percent of the people that follow <laughs> us they actually get to see the posts so yeah mm-hmm. it's not everyone is really no. looking at it so if yeah. that's your concern if you're listening and you're thinking i don't don't worry about it like two percent of people will see it so just do sure. it just do yeah it. And I think, you know, people love interacting. So if you compose a question, you know, actually using questions, if you're, if you're uncomfortable with stating your own opinion about something, start with a question. Um, you'll probably get some people commenting. If you want to, you can experiment with something like LinkedIn with a poll and think, mm-hmm. okay, well, people might start voting. Okay, this seems to be a topic people are slightly interested in at least. Then you go, you know, start with a the poll, then go to a question, and then, mm-hmm. you know, start responding to some of the comments. And that might give you an idea of, of how you would like to sort of present your own ideas and, and what focus you'd like to put on it. Um, mm-hmm. Finding your voice, I think, online is really quite difficult because, and I think it's natural to experiment with lots of different voices. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the one thing, that's the one thing I heard a teacher say to me is that she still thinks she hasn't found her voice, her mm. persona on on the internet and i think it speaks to what we said earlier in the beginning of our conversation um you have become the brand as a teacher like you have you have your niche you have your branding like 
when people when people look at what Dylan posts, you will see that there is a common thread in everything that he talks about. It's mostly talking about speaking unplugged. There's a little mm. bit of business, online courses and things like that. So I think I think teachers need to understand that now we have the internet, we can leverage this tool, and we just need to learn. And it's very unfortunate that, and I've, I've talked to a few teachers recently about this, it's really unfortunate that language, that teacher training courses, pre-service courses, are not helping teachers with that aspect of the of the um of the, the the trade the craft because i feel like when you think about pre-service courses all they're doing is they're basically indoctrinating teachers to work for someone else there there's i don't i don't i don't think i know of any pre-service course that actually teaches teaches to like you know how to create videos how to create content how to get your name and this is kind of what this is how we found our niche. We're like, we can mm. actually help teachers do that. Teachers who don't want to follow the traditional path. So I think the question that I have for you, um, Dylan, because you have played in, in, in you have your, your, your feet in both playgrounds. What are some of the biggest challenges, but also the rewards? I want you to think about the positives as well of working as a freelancer in, in English language teaching. Well, I mean, one of the challenges, it's it's obviously budgeting. You know, you never mm. quite know how much you will learn in a particular year. Um, I mean, I'm fairly lucky in that I live in a relatively cheap part of the world, at least in European terms. Um, so I can get by with an amount of money that, that would get me nowhere, for example, in Northern Europe. Um, so there's that. Um, that, for me, is one of the main challenges. And what tends to happen it's and I've done that, and I I still do it sometimes. You you think I want to start this project, but I've just been offered this this gig for the next two months. So you put your project on hold because you've been offered two months of work, and then by then you know the moment's gone. It's very difficult to pick up again from that. So yeah. I think you know making making those sort of decisions can be quite difficult for people, especially. Um, if you're in the situation where you've got a family to feed, for example. Um, but, you know, they're, they're decisions we have in life in general, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and I think in terms of the rewards, I think it's like with any job, isn't it? Working in language academies, it can get quite monotonous after a while because you will probably in most language academies be teaching more or less the same thing. Um, they often use the same course books because it's a lot easier. They have a deal with a certain publisher. So yeah. they get, I don't know, um, headway Oof. every year or whatever. And um, and so many teachers get frustrated after a while. And, and, and those teachers who are interested in developing their craft and quite early on, you realize if you do something like a diploma, then you realize that a lot of the, the course books aren't based on a methodology that is necessarily that effective. You yeah. start to question what works and what doesn't work. Um, and then that leads to that conflict, that internal conflict where you're teaching in an academy in a particular way, and you really don't want to teach that way because that's not what you believe about language teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so finding your own path, I think, and it, it can take time. Um, but but I think if you're 
the internet is wonderful in the sense that you can have these small little projects that keep you going. And then maybe if you might be able to combine two or three of them and suddenly you've got a bundle of, you know, you're not just looking for trying to sell your one course to a particular person. You've sold that one course to someone and they might be interested in your other two courses. So I think sometimes our expectations are too high. Mm. Because one of the great things about the internet is you can do things at a relatively low cost, but it can take a long, long time. Instant gratification culture, mm. I think, doesn't apply or, or is a hard hurdle of like, you mentioned taking on a project because I got offered two months I, circumstantially, like there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, certainly big picture, learning to say no is important if you want to mm. be self-employed or build, build a business. But it doesn't mean saying no to everything, but that means cool. being able to say yes to that because we have to eat, right? But also still within that carving out 60 minutes a day to still work on that consistency and build up that thing that I'm more passionate about and building it up to a sense over time where mm. it equals or surpasses the income I get from somewhere else. And as we like to say, we can make an informed decision, not an emotional one where like, this is my passion and mm. I'm going to just, you know, whereas it's just, hey, I have two things that make the same amount of money. I have three options. I can continue to do both. I can do only one and not the other, or I can do the other one and not the other one. And at least there's an informed decision-making process in that case. But the key to get there is it's not going to happen overnight, number one. So that consistency that you mentioned. And two, yeah, you can't just put it off and say to yourself, well, I'll just pick it up later because you probably won't. So carve out 30 yeah. minutes a day, 60 minutes a day, three hours a week, whatever is possible, mm -hmm. but just to keep in the, keep the momentum. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, as we, we're about to wrap up here, um, and there's one question that I want to return to, and this is something that we kind of opened the conversation with. And I remember, I, I don't know if I told you this, Dylan, but when we started the podcast, I, I, I would prepare heavily for these interviews. I would spend hours scouring the internet, looking for like really crazy information about guests i remember the conversation i had with scott he was like how do you know these things leo it's <laughs> like these are things that not even my therapist knows i was like oh no i did a lot of research but lately i find that the approach to to um to podcasting is is has to become more organic and i find that the conversations flow better that way and of course we were talking to you i was like you know what he sent me his bio i think i have enough here um and we're just gonna let this conversation kind of like flow but i want to go back to something that we we touched on at the beginning of our conversation which are which is basically this the modern teacher we're, we're talking about the the characteristics the trait of a modern language teacher especially because there are many many things that have changed over the last couple of years but more specifically we're looking at ai um so the question that i have is when you look at these trends, these developments that are kind of like shaping the future of not just the world, but of, of also language teaching, how do you, what do you see, how do you see some of these trends and these developments shaping what we do as language teachers? And how can we, how can teachers adapt and thrive in this ever-changing landscape oh that's a that's that's such a challenge isn't it i think i think ai has just thrown everyone 
um, <laughs> into this state of confusion because it it just appears so limitless, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, and and everyone now on social media is is blogging and posting about AI. Um, I mean, I've recently bought a course on AI actually, just because I wanted to to learn a little bit more about it. Um, but I think we have to be realistic that we can't. Again, it comes back to what I think I said at the beginning that you know, becoming a jack of all trades, master of none. Well, you might have to make that choice, and I think most of us will have to be relatively competent at a certain level. Um, you know, we we have to learn. I think as educators, twenty first century educators to be reasonably competent with a number of digital tools. Um, because if we're not, then we're just going to struggle in so many contexts. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't have to be perfect either. And I think as the great thing about technology is that it's that in many ways it becomes user more user-friendly as it becomes more advanced, doesn't it? Yeah. So things like recording a podcast. Seven, eight years ago, it was really difficult to record a podcast, especially something like this. And now you have tools, affordable tools for the most part, which can make it kind of relatively easy. So I imagine the technology is going to continue going in that way as well. So, so perhaps it's not something we need to stress about so much, um, which I guess opens up the possibility of going, oh, exactly back to basics, but, but thinking about pedagogy and what we, what we already know about language teaching and learning, what we what we um, we think works and what doesn't work, going back to kind of what we experience with our learners and and putting the the technology again it, it it comes back to what I feel about teaching unplugged, which is that there's a lot of stuff in the classroom, and yet effectively, you know what we're doing at the moment is we're just having a chat, and you know people might benefit from that, but this is content, so so even something as fundamental as conversing and having a conversation can become content. And uh, so I, I think we'll be around for a long time in some form, but we might That's have reassuring. to rebrand ourselves. <laughs> Iteration is always, I mean, Leo and I were talking about, I don't know how it came up. We were talking about Cristiano Ronaldo the other day and how, Leo, your opinion, he hasn't iterated his game and therefore he's struggling, no. whereas yeah. other older players have and they're having more success i mean with us i don't know if you want to comment on ronaldo but with businesses and teaching like it's all about iteration and these things will come up technology will always i mean it's not going to go away it's going to keep getting better and more iterative and we just continue to adapt and as long as we continue to adapt you know we'll be we'll be that insert mm -hmm. footballer here who has in don't be Ronaldo, I guess, is the mm, pull quote for this episode. Be Luka Modric, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Luka Modric is a very good example of a player who's learned to adapt his game based on evolution of football. I'm I'm reading uh, Pepe Guardiola's uh, book. I'm trying to remember the name now. I forget. But anyway, it's his biography. And it's basically that. From what I'm learning is that we have to really pay attention to those micro light bulb moments you know when you say "Ooh, that's interesting or "Ooh, i never thought of that mm. those moments are rare we should write them down most importantly revisit them and maybe hone in on them there's there's always i truly believe that there is always something in those micro light bulb moments and reading the biography pepe does that he's like 
he 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 really he really zeroes in on those moments. He's like, oh, I had this crazy thought. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to pursue this. This, Of course, it led to him being called, you know, like, you know, he's always trying to come up with, like he was, he kind of sabotaged some of his football teams because he was trying so hard to try different things. But, but that's one of the reasons why he is one of the best managers in the world is because he is constantly reinventing the game. And I think it speaks to what you said, um, Dylan. I think teachers have to be constantly reinventing the way they do things. If you remain stagnant, then... Exactly. I think it, but it's both, though, isn't it? It's, as you said, <clears throat> reinvention, but also revisiting. Yes. And um, <clears throat> combining those two. Mm -hmm. I mean, with, with Dogma Unplugged, it's something, as you said, has disappeared for a while. Yeah. And now we've found a way to sort of integrate it with technology because yeah. 10 years ago, it was always that you cannot use Dogma with technology. And right. now it's evolved. Now it seems to be a fairly standard practice. So Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. Well, Dylan, thank you very much for joining us. This has been a lovely conversation. Really. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Those micro light, light bulb motion, uh, moments, I've uh, had a few of them as well. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.